You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. In every bull market, there are leaders. In the 1960s, it was the so-called Nifty 50, a group of large caps which were seen as the ultimate buy-and-hold companies. The 50 contained familiar names like Anheuser-Busch, IBM, McDonald's, and Merck, and as a group, they led the market higher through a bull market which ran until the early 1970s. The group's growth prospects attracted investors from all over the world, forcing more dollars into a tiny group of stocks and forcing their P-E ratios into the 40s, But that didn't matter. Their growth was going to continue at its breakneck pace forever, and those lofty valuations were fully justified. But also among their number were names like Polaroid, Avon and Kodak, all of which have long since vanished from both the stock exchange and our daily lives. Polaroid, with its then innovative instant imaging technology, attracted such interest that its P-E ratio touched 90 at the height of the frenzy. However, when the bull market wave that had carried stocks higher for the best part of a decade suddenly gave way to the dismal, inflation-led bear market of the 1970s, the Nifty 50 were punished far harder than the rest of the market, seemingly as penance for their outperformance in the previous decade. Today's bull market has a similar, though far smaller, group of high-profile leaders which have led the nine-year bull market and represent perhaps the greatest concentration of investor appetite we've ever seen as they've ridden a wave of public adoration to what many see as unfathomable valuations. But there are signs that that tide is turning, and that not only is public opinion shifting, but their businesses may, for the first time in many years, be starting to feel the pressure created by the weight of expectation. What happens next will have a meaningful effect on investment portfolios across the globe. This week, on Adventures in Finance, The Fangs. Today is the 7th of December 2017 and welcome to episode 45 of Adventures in Finance. To my right, my trusty producer, as always, James. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Welcome back to the office, I guess. Thank you very much. We need to update everybody listening on the thing that I'm sure has been preoccupying them the most since last week, your Twitter followers. Where are we at? Because alongside the chart of Bitcoin, I would imagine the chart of James's Twitter followers has a similar arc to it. Well, it's it's at three hundred and thirty nine followers right now. So yeah, all right. Bitcoin was up seven percent last night. You're up ten percent in a week. That's, you know, this is this is possibly bubblicious. Is it James's Twitter bubble. What we need to. I wonder if there's a way to short James's Twitter followers. Think about that. Um, anyway, now this week we are going to discuss the Fang stocks, and joining me uh, are two fine gentlemen, Mark Mahaney of RBC Capital Markets, and my good friend Jesse Felder, author of the Felder Report. 
they are going to join me to talk about the various aspects of the Fang stocks, both with different points of view, both of which are worth hearing and both of which I think you will enjoy listening to. And also joining us this week from London is Robin Griffiths. And Robin is going to take us back to the 2008 financial crisis and talk about a couple of things he got right, but most importantly for him, a lesson he learned from something he got completely wrong. But first up, it's Fang time. And joining me now is Mark Mahaney from RBC Capital Markets. Now, I'm going to shatter some illusions out there uh, and give away the fact that we recorded this uh, interview earlier today. And unfortunately, we had a few sound issues. So I apologize in advance for the slightly sketchy sound quality. Uh, Please write in james at realvision.com to complain about that. Um, because it is, of course, the producer's job to make sure that none of these things happen. So, so it means nothing that I want to blame our very, very poor island internet feed. See, everybody can find excuses. <laughs> Only the greats find solutions. <laughs> Let's hand it over to Mark Mahaney of RBC Capital Market. Mark, welcome to Adventures in Finance. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So uh, the subject at hand is uh, big tech, uh, particularly um, the, fang, the FANG stocks. And uh, you, as an analyst that looks deep into these companies, looks at their balance sheets, looks at the businesses, we thought it would be a great opportunity to get your sense of, of where they currently stand and perhaps uh, your feelings for what happens in the next sort of six to 12 months. Uh, there's a couple of things I find fascinating about this group of stocks. So if we're talking FANG, we're talking uh, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, they have uh, materially outperformed the market uh, in 2017 and actually in 2016 and in 2015. So it's rare you would see a collection of stocks like this outperform for three years in a row. Statistically, that's, that doesn't happen too often. Uh, and so that maybe set up a challenge for 2018. But what's driving it um, has been extremely consistent fundamentals. Uh, for every quarter of these last three years, Google has grown its advertising revenue by 20%. Amazon has grown its retail revenue, not its cloud business, but its retail revenue by 20%. Netflix has grown its streaming revenue globally by about 35%. And believe it or not, uh, Facebook has actually uh, maintained close to 50% or greater uh, revenue growth. So the revenue trends have been extremely consistent uh, for this group. And arguably, some of these companies are still facing very early stage penetration rates versus their end markets. And what I mean by that is about 10% of retail sales are online, uh, even 20, you know, over 20 years past the, um, the, the launch of online retail shopping. So there's probably uh, good reasons to think that Amazon can sustain 20% growth for uh, arguably another five years. Like this with streaming, we think that there's a very small percentage the global market they could go streaming that has gone streaming. So we think the growth rates are sustainable in terms of the stocks. You know, the surprise here is for the last three years, the multiples really haven't changed. So the stocks have outperformed the market. It's all been driven by earnings growth, which means it's a very sustainable rally that we've seen in the stocks over the last three years. That doesn't mean it will continue, but it just means that the, the rally to date is defensible slash sustainable. Uh, and then the third thing I think has been kind of a constant about this group of stocks, first is the revenue growth has been a constant, second, the multiples have been a constant. And the third thing is you've seen from all of these companies pretty aggressive levels of investment, and it's actually probably what's allowed them to maintain these growth rates because they've kind of been able to look around corners, play a, a few moves down the chessboard, and see new growth opportunities. That was Amazon with cloud, Netflix with international launches, 
uh, uh, Facebook video and Instagram monetization, et cetera. And so I think that's, that significant level of investment and it continues today probably helps set, set up each of those companies for sustained growth you know, over the next uh, uh, three to five years. The big risk, the new, new thing on these stocks is probably regulation and government. I don't think there's any doubt that the level of government and public and regulatory scrutiny on these large uh, platforms has never been greater. Uh, there's been a couple of events that have really catalyzed that. So that's really the the new risk that we focus on with these names, not so much in terms of stymieing their revenue growth, but in terms of potentially causing greater increase in their uh, operating expenses. So, so let's, let's, let's stick to that, that last part uh, for the time being. Uh, I want to come back to a couple of points you made. But this idea of increased scrutiny, increased regulatory risk, uh, it, it's obviously a very real one, and if you if you just kind of look at the the headline mainstream media news, you can see the narrative kind of shifting. Um, as there's been some negative articles written about the effects that social media has on on young kids, um, and certainly Mark Zuckerberg's listening tour didn't really go down as well as perhaps he thought it might. So it just feels like there's a little backlash brewing. How do you, as an analyst, how do you kind of try and uh, equate for that? How do you try and handicap the chance of that happening uh, when you're looking at your balance sheets and, and bottom line performance? Well, I think to answer your question directly, the, the two things I have to focus on or any investor should focus on is, are any of these, uh, is any of the scrutiny likely to change these companies' revenue growth or are you going to make their cost of doing business? Is it going to increase the cost of doing right. business? Uh, and um, I, you know, I think the, the first one is really comes down to whether these this scrutiny is going to cause consumers to change their patterns and behaviors, or advertisers, or you know whatever the the end customer is. Uh, we haven't seen it uh, in the uh, extensive survey work that we do on these names uh, in multiple different uh, markets, the U.S. and overseas. We have not seen any quelling in. Um, in uh, consumer interest, in user interest, in you know general public interest in social media networks, uh, we see record high levels of interest in social media uh, networks. Uh, we see um, very high satisfaction scores amongst uh, Amazon uh, customers. Uh, we see uh, high satisfaction scores amongst Netflix customers too. I mean, these companies are are executing and generally executing very well. There are plenty of companies that haven't, and so uh, there are losers in the internet space and in the tech space. But we're talking about four winners uh, that uh, have executed really w- well against a massively rising tide, which is the much greater interest in consumers in shopping online, interacting with each other online, sharing things with each other uh, online, and uh, closest friends and uh, family members via uh, Facebook, uh, et cetera. So we haven't seen a pullback really in consumer interest. I, and I get the point about the media headlines, but in terms of the basic consumer behavior, we haven't seen a pullback. Advertisers' interest in these platforms continues to rise so I just don't see where the right now it's not clear where the revenue impact would be. The question mark though is in terms of operating expenses. And one of the uh, interesting news bits that came out of the September quarter earnings was Facebook announcing that they were going to double their capital expenditures in 2018 and increase their operating expenses by 45 to 60 percent. And in part, uh, citing the need to beef up the security of their network to avoid or to defend against uh, future hacks like they faced from Russia during the um, during the U.S. elections. Now, I, I would imagine that that was something they would have had to spend. Them they would have spent anyway. But I'm sure. Public scrutiny in the congressional hearings probably increased the pressure on the company to make sure that 
they didn't underspend, that they at least spent in line or overspent against that kind of risk. So that's how it's kind of showed up. That's as uh, investors should be cognizant of that, and uh, the analysts need to be cognizant of that too. So now the question is just how much more expensive could it be to run these businesses? And I think the ones that are probably most at risk of these are probably the media names uh, rather than the streaming or the uh, or the commerce names. Right. It's just t- jumping into um, Amazon for a second, you know, the, 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 the brickbats that are leveled at the company there are normally around profitability. Um, have you seen any sign of any impatience on the part of investors to actually see profits or has the narrative which, is, which has lasted through this three-year run that you know, we, we'll, we'll, we'll get big and we'll figure out how to make money out of it later, is that still rock solid? Uh, well, I'm going to give you a surprising answer. I think um, absolutely. Com- uh, I'm sorry, investors have lost patience with uh, Amazon, but that's a distant times in the past. So Amazon, this is arguably the fourth investment cycle that Amazon has gone through over the last 20 years, um, and I've covered the company throughout that entire period of time. Investors had very little patience for Amazon in 2000. Three, four, and five, when they put a lot of uh, investment dollars into something that eventually became Amazon Web Services and Kindle devices. Uh, but because the company successfully came out of that, investors, when the next major investment cycle came, which was in 2010, 11, 12, and uh, 13, when the company aggressively doubled its distribution center capacity in order to get to Amazon to support Amazon Prime, next day, same day fulfillment delivery. Investors were much more tolerant there, much more uh, uh, patient there. Uh, they were willing to support declining losses and meager profits for three years. Uh, and then eventually investors lost patience. But you know, what came out of that was arguably the deepest moats in, uh, in retail and rising customer satisfaction. And you know, just uh, the explosive growth of this uh, Amazon Web Services, which is arguably you know playing against the single biggest trend across all of technology, which is cloud computing. And so I think investors have decided that um, we've seen this company execute extremely well through two investment cycles where they went deep into the deep into the red and came out with, um, you know, dramatically innovative uh, products and almost new industries. Cloud computing really is a new industry, and the company that really invented it, or the two inventors of it, was Amazon. So they get a huge pass now from investors uh, precisely because they've shown the ability to really successfully invest. And by the way, what's come out of that is a highly profitable cloud computing business. Uh, that business is generated, you know, 20 to 25% gap operating margins, uh, so the ability of the company to show real cash flow now, I think, is very clear to investors, especially those who've kind of lived through the investment cycles of the last 10 to 15 years and seen what this company is capable of. I don't want to overstate it, but you know, there's clear, clearly been an upsurge in free cash flow kicking up from the sub-business model the last five years precisely because of the investment cycles the company's gone into in the past. And that's given uh, investors a lot of reason to be patient with this company. Right. I mean, you, you can see that in the, in the performance of the stock. It's been, uh, it's been phenomenal. Uh, the, the, other, the other one of the FANG stocks, actually Netflix has done a phenomenal job in changing its entire business model. Um, and they now are spending billions on content. And, and it seems to be that this content war is really only just getting started when you look at what's happening with Hulu you look at Disney's moves. Um, when you look six to twelve months out for Netflix, do you see do you see them maintaining their position, or are they going to be fighting fires uh, around every corner? Do you think? 
you know, I, I think they're going to be fighting fires just like they have, frankly, over the last five to 10 years. So again, you know, I've covered this company for a long time, and this is a company that faced dramatic competition at DVD, rent company from the likes of Walmart, Amazon, Blockbuster. And they succeeded through that, um, competitive, those competitive risks when it was very uncertain that a tiny little company from Los Gatos, California could even survive. And they did something very rare, which is uh, they invented a business that destroyed the existing business. Don't normally see that in business, but streaming has essentially undermined the rationale for DVDs. Uh, you, don't, you rarely see a company do that. They've been, uh, I'd argue, extremely um, uh, successful. They now uh, account for over 100 million of the 150 million global uh, video streaming subscribers. There's clearly a dramatic secular shift uh, towards this. So will there be competition going forward? Absolutely there will be. Um, Hulu's one of the Hulu is, you know, maybe a tenth the size of um, uh, eighth to a tenth the size of uh, of, uh, of, uh, of Netflix. Amazon is a competitor. Yes, Disney could will probably come out. Although they're talking about a an offering coming out at the end of 2019 uh, with uncertain content, uncertain price points. In any other industry, that would be called vaporware kind of announcement. Uh, but anyway, they, they, they clearly are companies that have great um, uh, you know consumer brands and consumer relationships. Although there's not that many that could really take on Netflix on a global basis. And I would actually argue if this is a very expensive business to build up. So startup costs are normal. I'm sorry, are enormous. That's what I meant to say. The uh, you know the ante to participate in global streaming. I mean, you've got to be willing to spend you know five to ten billion dollars a year to compete. And that means that the bigger Netflix gets, the harder it is. It's going to be for anybody to catch up uh, to them because with that that many subscribers, that means they have that much more revenue than anybody else with which to buy more content, which in turn begets more subscribers, which in turn begets more revenue. There's something called a flywheel effect that's going on in the scale that Netflix has. is going to be very hard for people to uh, to catch up to. So I think their competitive position has actually gotten stronger and it will continue to get stronger each year. They could still mis-execute on a bunch of things and, you know, you've got to get content right. And there's a lot of fashion risk associated with it, but they've shown a real uh, ability to, to get this right uh, uh, so far. And, and, you know, it's a stock that we continue to like. You know, the, 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 the charges thrown at uh, the Fang stocks are that they are quote unquote, I think Howard Marks said it priced for perfection. Um, do you see it this way, or do you think there is room there? And at, at this point in the cycle, as we end at year, as we enter the uh, you know the, the, the closing bell of the year, and people are going to try and square up their positions, perhaps lock in profits for the year. Do you think these companies are under a little bit of threat there, or do you think people are still going to hang on to these, and there's room for further growth in 2018? Well, I'll give you a twofold answer. Uh, one is that I certainly I completely disagree with the idea that they are priced for perfection. Uh, but that said, they could still we could still see a rotation. If we're going to see a major rotation away from growth towards value, um, and we've been this is year nine, I believe, of growth outperforming value. Uh, that's one of the longest stretches you've seen. Uh, so eventually, that will uh, you're almost certainly going to have some sort of reversion, probably when interest rates rise materially from current levels, uh, which is uh, probable, uh, especially if we're going to um, uh, start running uh, again massive deficits. Uh, so that, that, that's that's a that, that that scenario. One can see the logic behind that. But to the first point, I'd like to make about these things being priced for perfection. 
Um, I'll put this argument out. I think everybody's very familiar, investors are familiar with the, the expression consumer staples. And they think about Procter & Gamble and Nestle and Unilever and these 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 businesses that are considered, you know, they have products that consumers are going to keep using for the next 5, 10, 15 years. Their staples are in everybody's households. These, these companies will grow their revenue 3 to 5% a year, and they, grew, and they trade at 20 to 25 times earnings. I'm offering you, or the market is really offering you, these internet companies like Google that I think you know people are going to use five years, 10 years, 15 years from now that are also trading at 20 to 25 times earnings, but they're growing their top line at 20% year over year. So you get much better growth at the same multiple as what you pay for consumer staples. That to me is one of those pieces of evidence that these companies are valued far from um, far from perfection. These, these aren't perfectly priced uh, uh, assets. Uh, you know, another argument I'd, uh, I'd give you is that the multiples on these names, again, over the last three years, you've had dramatic outperformance, but it's all been earnings driven. It's not like these, it's not like a Google and a Facebook, both of which traded about 25 times earnings. Yes, that's a premium to the market, which trades at 19 times earnings. But, you know, the market grows earnings, you know, they call it six, seven, eight, nine percent year over year. And these companies are giving you earnings growth, you know, at the low end, 15%, at the high end, over 30%. Like they are growing earnings two to three to four X out of the market, yet you're only paying a couple of points premium to the market. So I'm trying to give you a couple of arguments for why I strongly disagree with the idea that these stocks are priced for perfection. But I'll, you know, I'll also end up with that caveat that if we're going to have a market that wants to switch away from growth uh, and really wants to go to defensive uh, stocks, you know, that these wouldn't be, these wouldn't be in a defensive uh, portfolio. They'd be in a fundamentals defensive portfolio because I do think they're internet staples. I don't think their growth rates are going to, are going to, uh, are going to, are going to um, negatively inflect anytime soon. Uh, but, um, but in a, in a, in a defensive, uh, you know, a move towards a value a portfolio, other names would rise up. And that's the, there's really, that's the real, probably the single biggest stock risk I think about going into the next 12 to 24 months. And I call that portfolio risk. Yeah, no, good point. So that's a, the, uh, the Staples argument is a very good one. Um, just going into, uh, 2018 and looking across the FANG stocks, you know, how do you, how do you handicap that and and say outside of portfolio risk, do you do you see any other potential hurdles they may have to get over? Or do you think the next twelve months, let's say, uh, barring any kind of major market meltdown, uh, these guys are sitting pretty? So uh, let me uh, and I'll and I'll try to end up with just uh, you know one or two points here, two or three points here. First is that um, you know I do think about the portfolio risk. So something that would indicate a real dramatic rise in interest rates would be something that. Uh, could well cause um, uh, the market to switch towards uh, value stocks, and that could cause uh, these stocks. I don't necessarily think you'd see a correction in these stocks, but it could certainly limit outperformance in these names. So I guess that would be a point one. Point two is I do worry about, and I think investors should worry about, you know, uh, regulatory risk. Now, there is one very specific thing that we haven't yet talked about, and that's related to Google. This company has already faced one regulatory fine from the EU for some of its comparison shopping practices in Europe. There are at least two other investigations that are going on related to Google and its Android uh, practices. And so it's possible that you'll see um, uh, other uh, another fine uh, come their come company's way. That probably doesn't disrupt the the value the uh, the investment pitch. But if it led to a change in business practices and required Google to stop bundling Android uh, with some of its other Google services when they sell those to um, 
to carriers and mobile um, uh, operating uh, or OEMs or you know um, uh, mobile phone uh, manufacturers that could cause a change in its uh, that could cause a change or a step up in its uh, business uh, business costs. So there, there, I do worry about that regulatory risk, and uh, you know I do see what happened with Facebook, and their need to materially increase their uh, the amount of money that they spend on security platform security. So there are wild cards out there that could cause operating expenses to rise in 2018. I do think about that as a fundamental risk. I think in, I think investors should uh, should too. But the last point I. I give you outside of that is uh, barring those two things. I don't think there's any sort of near-term fundamental risk. I don't think there's any particular reason why the revenue growth rates that we've seen from those four names in particular are going to dramatically slow in uh, 2018, barring some overall, you know, macro, um, you know, hiccup or uh, massive market correction due to geopolitical factors. Fantastic, Mark. Now, are you. Um, we normally end up um, interview segments like this with giving people a chance to tell uh, our listeners where they can follow them. Are you on Twitter, or is there anywhere people can follow your work and kind of keep in touch with your thoughts on these things, or is it is it strictly through the the, the, the RBC? Uh, it's uh, it's really strictly through RBC. Okay. Uh, so uh, I've been at RBC for five years, and uh, we've got an outstanding sales force uh, that uh, that works uh, with me. I work with them, um, so it's. Uh, yeah, that's uh, we are, are RBC exclusive, but you know, always enjoy doing these type of events. Well, it's great. I, I appreciate you taking the time, and thanks for coming on and talking to us today. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mark made some very good points uh, about some of the Fang stocks there, and obviously he has a bullish outlook on that. And to balance that out, I wanted to bring in my friend Jesse Felder. I was in uh, Oregon and watched a presentation that Jesse gave about the Fang stocks a few months ago, and it was really exceptional. And some of the points he made there, thought I thought would counter. Uh, Mark's arguments beautifully. So uh, let's bring Jesse in. Jesse, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. I'm a big fan of the show, so it's an honor to be here. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's whenever you and I get together, it's always a lot of fun. And uh, I, I always leave kind of sucking a thoughtful tooth. And, and the last time we met was no different. You, know, you gave a presentation up in uh, your neck of the woods up there in Oregon about the fang stocks, which, uh, which was just fantastic. It blew everybody away. And it was just the the way it changed your thinking and I think changed everybody's thinking in that room. So I wanted to talk to you today about that, about your current thoughts on the stocks, where you see them, and and perhaps more importantly, your thinking around the companies, the FANG companies, which I know has changed over the last six months or so. Yeah, you know, I I think um, it was really what inspired my presentation was uh, Howard Marks' latest memo where he talks about how the market is priced for perfection um, but you always have a group in every bull market, a group that is the you know the leadership, and these stocks you know individually also become priced for perfection. I started thinking about okay, what does that mean, and is that true regarding these these companies? And when you look at the valuations, the way I look at valuations um, for these stocks is not necessarily relative to the broad market. I, I like to look at what's the valuation of the company relative to its own history, yeah. and how are the fundamentals in that company changing? And I, I think that's when you look at the stocks that. That way, they all trade at their highest valuations in years, even while risks to their business models are, are rising. Well, let's talk about some of those risks because um, you and I both read a book recently called The Four by uh, Professor Scott Galloway out of NYU, which is a fascinating uh, look into Apple, Amazon, Google, and Facebook. And you know, it says on the dust jacket, once you read this, you'll never look at those companies the same again. And I, I, I echo that. And I, and I know you did too. So, so what was as you went through that book? How did that 
help you look at these companies uh, in their current context? Yeah, you know, it's, it's Scott's book is fantastic. There's another one that I recently read called uh, Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technologies. And um, that one also is really interesting uh, about the how these companies have used, you know, the tools of psychology and the lessons and things that, uh, you know, uh, gambling casinos have used to, you know, create behavioral addictions to be able to manipulate people in ways that have never been, you know, seen before. Uh, uh, it's all brand new. And so, um, and people are starting to understand the risks involved with this. And, uh, you know, I, I recently recorded a conversation um, with uh, Roger McNamee, uh, who was one of the first investors in Facebook. He was the, basically the one who convinced Mark Zuckerberg not to sell Facebook to Yahoo for a billion dollars. He also introduced Sheryl Sandberg to Mark when they were trying to figure out how to monetize the platform. So, I mean, a guy who's been instrumental in the history of Facebook, who's now absolutely terrified by what these platforms are now capable of. So, uh, you know, I I think people are waking up to this, not just inside the industry, but, uh, you know, Washington is waking up to this. Congress is waking up to this. And and, uh, eventually the users of the platforms are going to realize, you know, how they're being manipulated. And I think that's, you know, there's, there's dangers to these companies from a lot of different areas now. Well, this, this, I mean, Facebook in particular, this started with uh, the US election and all the sort of Russia stuff about influence people. And it became kind of a throwaway headline and people joking about everything was Russia's fault. But it's been interesting in the last two or three months to notice that narrative really shift. And, and it started subtly with a few digs at you know, Mark Zuckerberg here and there on a personal basis when he did his listening tour of the US and, and stuff like that. But it, it is noticeable how many uh, articles which are extremely negative, not just about Facebook, the company, but the effect it's having on on young kids. Um, it's amazing how visibly that narrative has picked up in recent months. Yeah, I think, you know, the way Scott Galloway has, has uh, he's basically said the worm has turned. And, you know, that's just sentiment towards these companies has changed so quickly. You know, I, I talked with uh, uh, Peter Atwater about this, and he says, you know, welcome to the backlash yeah. era that these, you know, the, these signs of populism and people are fed up with politics, you know, po- politics as usual, um, this backlash towards um, sexual harassers, which is absolutely justified, um, but it's it's becoming very popular to to um, you know, ba- to uh, I guess revolt against bullies, and this is this is a, a theme that's you know growing in society, and I think it's starting now to turn towards these these big corporate bullies, you know, and and Amazon is the one that comes to mind to me that is just kind of coming in and, and taking over industries and putting retailers out of business and and kind of doing it with impunity, and um, you know, th- th- this backlash era is going to start to turn. I think we're already seeing it turn towards big tech. Well, it's funny that the Amazon thing is a great example because what we have here is essentially a a monopoly, but it's the first one in history that hasn't made any profits. And I just don't think that the powers that be really know what to do about that because it's it's normally monopolistic profits that people go after. But here's Amazon, not, not making a dime essentially, but just slowly growing. 
Um, and at some point, it's the weed that's going to strangle the garden. And it seems we're getting closer and closer to that point without anybody really seeing what's happening. Yeah, and, and Amazon's a really interesting example because investors have given the company a lot of slack to, um, you know, grow uh, the top line without any profits. Uh, but if you know regulatory, um, you know, uh, capabilities and and uh, will changes so that you know we're not just looking at companies that are squeezing consumers for for profits, but we look at companies that have you know incredible power to um, you know take over industries. Uh, you know, Amazon's growth is going to come into question because I think the reason that they're looking at getting into all these other businesses is well how are we going to continue to grow 20 30% a year in you know these traditional uh, you know retail I mean they went from books to broader retail they have to keep expanding into other sectors and other uh, other areas in order to keep that growth going and so there's a I think we're we're potentially going to see an interesting inflection point where Amazon is going to try and get into other industries and if why Washington decides to not allow them to do that anymore, then the growth is going to come down. And I think investors are going to have to, you know, begin to demand that they turn on the profit spigot. And are they really capable of doing that? So I, I think that that day could come sooner than most people are, are thinking. Well, this is, I mean, this fits perfectly into that backlash era narrative because, you know, for, for Amazon to come in and start gobbling up other industries, if it becomes politically popular to take a swipe at Amazon, then you, you you know the guys on Capitol Hill are going to jump on that bandwagon as fast as they possibly can. If that's if that's the way to be become popular in the public eyes, particularly going into important midterms next year, I, I can see them wanting to do that very quickly. Absolutely, and I think this is one area where people don't understand that this is this is a, a bipartisan issue. I mean, both sides of the aisle are kind of on board with greater regulations for these companies, and um, you know, you have you, you hear liberals talking about it. Uh, you know, they were really harsh towards uh, you know during the the hearings, harsh towards um, you know the, the the attorneys that represented the companies, um, but also you have you know Steve Bannon who said you know. Republicans are going to make it their primary issue to regulate big tech next year, and so you know this is this is this is a big deal. And you know it was interesting for me to talk with Roger McNamee about this because he says investors should be really praying that these companies get more highly regulated because if they don't, the path that they're on right now, we're going to see a massive user revolt. That they're basically they're using uh, the, the the members of these platforms to such a degree. You know we see all the studies. You know more you use. Facebook, the unhappier you are. That's you know a direct result of these platforms trying to manipulate people to make them consume what they want them to do. That if they keep keep going in this direction, they're going to lose their user base as people start getting fed up with being manipulated like this. So you know his point was investors in these companies should bet should really be hoping uh, for greater regulation because that's probably the one thing that's going to save their save them at this point. You touched there on, on some of the surveys. There was, there was a great article that you referenced in your presentation that I had actually read and had sent to everybody I could think of. Um, it was in the Atlantic magazine. I think it was called Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? And it was a, it was a profound article talking about, and again, you touched on it there, the effects that smartphones and social media are having on kids. And, and of course, this is such a new phenomenon that really – the studies that people have been able to do with enough data are only going to start coming out 
now. You know, we haven't really seen any studies that, that could go back far enough. Um, but I, you know, having witnessed through my two kids how social media has taken over their lives, I, I struggle to find or I struggle to, to see how these survey results are going to come back positively. You know, it feels to me that that Atlantic article is just going to be not the tip of an iceberg, but the first snowflake in an avalanche. Absolutely. And I have, you know, two teenagers and uh, who I noticed, you know, that Irresistible is just a great book because it talks about how powerful these technologies are in creating behavioral addictions and how dangerous they are to kids who, you know, in, in the very formative years are learning how to be social. They're learning empathy. They're learning how to read people's faces and reactions. And, and if they're just doing that through screens, they're not actually learning how to become, you know, uh, empathetic human, you know, valuable to society, human beings. Um, and, you know, for me, I, it was really eye-opening to see Sean Parker, the the first, mm -hmm. you know, the president of Facebook come out and say, look, we're basically just a bunch of hackers and we figured out how to hack people's brains. And, uh, you know, now I'm, I'm kind of ashamed of, of what we've built and I'm frightened about what it's doing to our kids' brains. Um, and so you have, uh, you know, people within the companies, outside the companies. This is this is something that, uh, you know, in Irresistible, he writes about how, you know, 100 years ago, Sigmund Freud was experimenting with cocaine. He thought it was the new miracle drug that was going to save lives and, you know, all these things and change people's world. And, you know, today, 100 years later, we understand cocaine's not something you want right. to, right. you know. Uh, Although maybe and, Freud just said that that was his excuse when the police busted him. I don't know. You know, I'm experimenting right. with this thing. It's, <laughs> yeah, but they make the point in the in irresistible that uh, that um, you know a hundred years from now we're going to look back and go these new technologies. Yes, there's a lot of good valuable things that they're capable of, but they also are capable of doing a lot of damage uh, to us mentally. Um, and so we're going to have to find a way to to limit uh, and use them in a, in a healthy way. So uh, yeah, it's it's a really interesting time right now. Well, you know, the outlier in the, the, the four companies talked about in, in Scott Galloway's book for sure is Apple. You know, this is essentially a hardware company now as opposed to a software company. But, but they are the nexus of all these other competing um, platforms. You know, people get their Facebook and their Twitter and their Amazon and their Google now through their phones largely. Um, what are your thoughts on Apple? Because it, it is different, but again, it, it's, it's doing something similar but in, but in a completely different way. Yeah, there's, I, you know, I, the valuation of Apple is obviously, you know, people send me emails and they say, hey, Jesse, Apple's not expensive. And I said, well, yeah, it's not expensive relative to the broad market. But if you look at it relative to its own history, it's the most expensive it's been in the last 10 years. And at the same time, gross margins are coming down, sales growth is coming down. Um, and there there are, you know, risks to, to their business model, too. I mean, the iPhone, it, Apple is the iPhone. 90% um, of the profits come from iPhone, and um, there's a lot of uh, other companies making headway. Uh, I mean, there was an article that came out today, which you know they lost share big time in October to Android phones, um, and you know so that I, I think it's people don't realize the risk in when you're one product company. Um, there's also I think a risk in Apple positioning themselves now at the very very high end of um, the, uh, the the cell phone market, uh, almost as a stat the app, you know, iPhone being a 
status symbol, iPhone yeah. X or iPhone 10, whatever you call it. And right now, you know, with what's going on in society and the backlash to wealth inequality and these things, I think it's dangerous to position yourself as a status symbol when people are, uh, you know, there's this there, there's some some backlash building towards. Uh, wealth inequality and, and towards these things. And so, you know, I, I think it'd be much more, um, you know, palatable or a smarter business strategy and to position yourself as the every every person phone, but that's not going to get them the gross margins they need. So, you know, that's potentially uh, a risk to the business too. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. So Jesse, a, a, another name that, that wasn't covered in Scott's book, but was covered in your presentation uh, was NVIDIA. And this is perhaps a name that a lot of people listening won't be familiar and certainly won't understand the, the tie-in it has to these other stocks. But if you look at the chart, uh, it's perhaps the, the the most vertical of all of them. So perhaps you could run us through the, the NVIDIA story. Yeah, so you know, Fang is traditionally Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. I add Apple and Nvidia in there um, too. Nvidia is interesting because the stock has just you know gone up something like tenfold or something in the last couple of years, and it's really a play on Bitcoin at this point. Um, people are also using it as a play on artificial intelligence and self-driving cars. Um, but the stock trades at 15 times revenues, which is right. ab absolutely insane. Um, Scott McNeely, whose you know stock during the dot-com bubble went up to 10 times revenues, and in 2001 or two, after the bubble had burst, he gave an interview to Bloomberg, and I just got to you know share the quote with Scott McNeely. He says, uh, "quote At 10 times revenues, to give you a 10-year payback, I have to pay you 100% of revenues for 10 years in dividends. That assumes I can get that by my shareholders. That assumes." I have zero cost of goods sold, which is very hard for a computer company. That assumes zero expenses, which is really hard with 39,000 employees. Um, NVIDIA has over 10,000. Uh, that assumes I pay no taxes, which is very hard. And that assumes you pay no taxes on your dividends, which is kind of illegal. And that assumes with zero R&D for the next 10 years, I can maintain the current revenue run rate. Now, having done that, would any of you like to buy my stock at 65 bucks a share? Do you realize how ridiculous those basic assumptions are? You don't need any transparency. You don't need any footnotes. What were you thinking? That's end quote. Uh, his stock went from five to sixty-five and back to five uh, after the you know dot-com bubble burst. Nvidia trades fifteen times yeah. revenues, and um, you know so if all of these things come to pass, and you know Bitcoin does take over the global payment system, artificial intelligence, and Nvidia owns it. And you know, then maybe it will fill these valuation shoes. But there's so much hype built into the stock price, and at the same time, you know, insiders are selling hand over fist. I mean, they're just dumping stock. They're, you know, talking about all these wonderful things, but they're not buying the stock. They're yeah. they're actually selling. Um, and one final point that I would make about this, you know, price to sales ratio, is at the the peak of the dot com mania in March of 2000. Um, uh, Toby Carlisle of the Acquires Multiple helped me uh, run these numbers. At the peak in March 2000, there were 29 stocks in the S&P 500 that traded over 10 times sales. Today, there's 28. So we're essentially equivalent today of what we saw at the peak of the dot-com mania. NVIDIA is really the poster child, though, of uh, incredibly high valuation. Yeah. It, it is remarkable because you know, we, we can look back at Sun and uh, and look how how that traded. We can see the quote there from Scott in real time, and yet Nvidia is trading at a fifty percent premium to that, and yet 
people aren't making that connection. It's amazing what happens when you get these manias. Well, there's actually a great deal of irony, uh, too, in this quote, because Facebook is another one that trades 15 times revenues, and Facebook actually took over Sun Micro's old headquarters. And the main sign on the entrance to their, to where you drive into their their campus is the old Sun sign. They just turned it around backwards and painted Facebook on the front. So <laughs> <laughs> History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Absolutely. We're close enough to the end of the year that... Uh, we can start looking forward to 2018, I guess. We are in December after all. So, so when, you, when you look at that and you've seen this shift, you know, the movement towards the backlash era, the, the, the challenges the companies are finally starting to face, what do, you, what do you see when you look out at the FANG stocks next year? It is, does the ETF phenomenon keep them afloat for longer or do you think that uh, 2018 is going to see them finally start to struggle a little bit? Well, I think you know they're eventually going to come back to reality. They are they are priced for perfection. They're priced as if none of these risks are out there, and uh, you know. So for me, if they just went back to their average valuations of the last ten years, you know, then they lose half their half or a third of their value. Now, if you start pricing in some of these risks, then they probably go back to the low end of their valuation range, which means you know it's probably a fifty percent drop for most of these stocks. And so to me, I look at that's the risk. You know, what's the upside can they can they fill these these valuation shoes well things would have to go all right for them not get regulated users you know love being manipulated i mean all these things and so to me it just seems like the the uh, risk reward here is all risk with very very little potential reward um and and so i i, I for me, it's not something that uh, that that I'd want to own. Um, and the other thing I think about is they're so integral to the broad market; they are the leadership. So if these things do start reversing, it's not not great for the for the broader market. Perfect, Jesse. Uh, it's it's always fun to sit and chat with you. As I said at the top of the interview, and uh, I want to make sure that as many people out there listening to this get the chance to do that too. So perhaps you could just tell them where they can find you, how they can follow you, and all that good stuff. Yeah, I try and uh, blog on a regular basis at thefelderreport.com. Uh, I'm also really active on Twitter. Um, I am an, an admitted social media addict when it comes to Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, for me, it's a it's a terrific platform to share ideas, and I I try and share a lot of the research that I'm reading, charts and that kind of stuff. It's just at Jesse Felder. I, I I can vouch for the high quality of your tweets, and I can also vouch for anyone who does put that in and looks to follow you that uh, the guy with the copious beard is in fact you uh, they're not going to recognize you <laughs> from that picture but it is jesse felder uh once again jesse thank you so much um and i look forward to next time you and i get a chance to sit down in person over a beer or coffee and share some more of these stories absolutely thanks for having me it's my pleasure i cannot stress enough how worthwhile it is for you guys out there to follow jesse on twitter at jesse felder I mean, if you're, if you're restricting the number of people you can follow, then uh, just uh, unfollow James and follow Jesse because, believe me, that is a pair's trade you would do all day long. He's got a better picture than me. <laughs> he does have a better picture than you. I also heartily recommend Scott Galloway's book, The Four. I think it's an exceptional piece of work that uh, will, as the dust jacket says, make you think about these stocks uh, a completely different way. And uh, Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked by Adam Alter, which Jesse has recommended, is going straight in my Amazon shopping cart after we've finished recording this podcast. 
But moving on, joining us now is Robin Griffiths, the head of multi-asset research at ECU Group in London. And Robin has very kindly agreed to come on uh, and fess up to a mistake he's made. Robin, welcome back to Real Vision. Thank you. This is the part of the show where I get to ask people to lay their soul bare and tell us about an awful mistake they've made. And uh, we've yeah. had quite a procession of them over the last two series of the podcast. And uh, so I'm, yeah. I'm delighted to be able to add you to that, to that list. So, so mm. perhaps you could uh, talk to us about, uh, about the thing you got wrong. Yeah, well, uh, we're kind of in the middle of, of one of them almost now. <laughs> uh, basically, uh, my, I got right the bear market that would come from the bump, dot-com bubble peak in the year 2000. And I also got right the bear market that would begin in 2007 and would end in 2009. I didn't actually get right quite how big and disastrous that bear would be, but that there would be an equity bear market correction. I got that right. However, when we got to the low in 2009, the only call I made was we were now so oversold and so beaten down, there would be a rally. Uh, a reasonably significant rally. So I, I sort of got that amount right. But what I didn't get, it would not, it would be a monstrous, super long rally, uh, very nearly leading to the second longest bull market in history. I, I, so I, I, I missed the bottom in, in that sense. That you should buy something, I got about right. But that you should massively allocate to equities at that stage, I didn't get right. The, the, the second bit, which is very current right now, is for most of my career, I've been, uh, I have a degree in economics. And I've been saying, I looked at the model published by Joseph Schumpeter back in the 1930s, in where he put together the work of different people, saying each of these guys have identified a cycle in economics. And Schumpeter showed how these cycles would interact with each other. And basically, there's, of course, a one-year annual seasonal deviation. It's also a four-year cycle, normally called the kitchen wave. And then there's a 10-year cycle, normally called the juggler wave, and a much longer cycle called the Kondratiev wave. And I've spent my life saying, if these economic cycles are correct, I'll draw you a roadmap of the stock market and where we'll be in it. And, of course... What those cycles predict now, particularly as we're in the seventh year of the decade, there's a high probability of a very nasty bear market correction. The first bit that went wrong was the four-year cycle. We're having an eight-year bull market. What happened to the four-year cycle? That oughtn't to happen at all. But of course, some of the indicators rolled negative at the four-year cycle, and it was only when Donald Trump became president that it went bullish again. Up until then, it was bond markets beating equities. So on my work, that was called a bear market. But you and I know the S&P and the Dow were still going up even then. And I got a lot of stick at the time for calling it a bear market. But ever since the, um, Donald became the prime minister, uh, the president, all of the assets in my system that are at the top of the list that you should be long of, they're all equity markets. Of course, in my global view, the equities we should be owning are not the UK or the USA. We should be fully invested in China, India, and emerging markets. And I've just added Japan to the list. And a lot of Americans think, oh, hold on, Robin, but our S&Ds are the new all-time high. We're doing well. But if you actually run the numbers, which I do, 
if all U.S. citizens had liquidated their portfolios in the year 2000 and bought China instead, they would actually be 800% better off than they are. And that comes as a shock. So that bit I've sort of got right. But here we are. I've spent my lifetime doing Schumpeter's models, and there is no four-year cycle. At the moment, there is absolutely no evidence that the four-year so-called kitchen wave is alive and well. Uh, so I got that wrong. And secondly, the 10-year cycle, it's much harder to override a 10-year cycle. What normally happens on the juggler wave is the first one, two, or three years of any decade, the index is up a little bit, down a little bit. It doesn't really go anywhere. And then in the fourth and fifth years of most decades, and this back tests 200 years worth of data, you get a roaring bull market. And if there's going to be a bearish correction, and there usually is one, it starts in the seventh year of the decade. You can think back to last decade. Well, it definitely started then. Of course, the worst of it was in 2008 and 2009, but it began in 2007. And here we are nearly at the end of 2007. No damn setback. So I'm sort of, all of my cycle work, all of my, what I think I've learned over the years says, we're in, a, in, in almost the dead zone when you would expect a sort of stock market correction. And the role model I've got in mind, because I can remember it so well, is 1987, where we were in fact in the middle of a bull market and we came in on the 19th of October and the whole damn thing was down 25%. What happened there? You know, it's one of those. And why I think we're vulnerable for this is because when you look at the stocks in the S&P 500, for example, firstly, they're expensive by historic standards. Secondly, all of the ones that used to be called the backbone of corporate America, I'm thinking IBM, General Electric, Walmart, they're all 30% off their high. They're quite obviously in a bear market and have been for a long time. But because the index is weighted by market cap, these stocks that didn't used to exist, nowadays called FANG, you know, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Tesla, that's what's holding the index up, looking like it's on a linear trend. But they're the tiny minority. They just happen to be very big market cap stocks. And it's making a mess of my cyclical predictions. And, and of course, I understand what's happening. But in a sense, I'm wrong. All of my cycle workers said, take money off the, off the table. It's bad value. If you buy this value, you lose money. And I, I'm an avid reader of great value investors like that Jeremy Grantham at Grantham Mayo, for example, or even Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett wouldn't be sitting on $100 billion of cash if he was that bullish. And so everything says we ought to come back to better valuations of the main market, and yet it isn't happening. And the more people find they can't beat the index, they just go to Vanguard and buy the index. And that has the effect of herding more and more people into fewer and fewer stocks until everybody is overlong of fang. And all it requires is one of those guys to wobble a bit, and we could have a 1987-style correction. I've been looking for it. I've been expecting it. And it hasn't happened, so I'm wrong. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's agony. It's mental agony for me.
So let, so let me ask you a question. Let me ask yeah, you a question because yeah. because I think there's a really valuable lesson in here for people listening because you've yeah, done yeah. you've done a trim. I mean, you've been in the markets for fifty years now. I mean, it's uh, yes, I, have, I, yeah. I, I don't I don't want to age you. I should let you do that. But yeah, no, I'm but you have and, now. Yeah, yeah. So, so your experience is is you know almost without peer these days. There are so yes, few people who've yes. lasted as long as you have. So yeah. the, the the question I guess I have to ask with this for someone that has your longevity and your experience and has seen what you've seen and has come yeah. to really be able to rely on his framework the way you have. Yes. How yes. do you deal with the fact that for, for whatever reason, uh, and you know, I would, I would put forward the fact that central banks interfering in, in the regular markets is probably what's corrupted yes. those cycles of yours. But, yeah, absolutely. But, but yeah. how do you deal with the fact that everything you've learned over those 50 years has mm. been rendered ineffective by an outside hand. How, how do you yeah. cope with that and how do you adjust yourself to, to be able to handle Well, it, it? it's extraordinarily difficult. What Bill Gross used to call the old normal, clearly we're not in that now. We're yeah. in some new new normal. No, In history, and all of the data I've got going back hundreds of years, we've never had very low interest rates or zero interest rates, and in some countries, negative real interest rates. We've never had that before. I know if you were a bank robber in Timbuktu and you took your money to Switzerland in the past, they simply paid you money to keep it there and they didn't tell anybody. So that was equivalent to sort of zero interest rate, but it didn't apply to everybody. Uh, so this is the bit that is completely different and, in my opinion, uh, kind of wrong. And, and, it, and it can't last. But I, as Kane said, these things can last a lot longer than you can last without going bankrupt first. So it's, in this so-called new normal, this is the bit that um, has thrown me. You see, all of those cycles that I've studied are basically Northern Hemisphere, Western world cycles. They really began when Britain was the dominant superpower, and they carried on in the era when America is the dominant superpower. But you and I know we're now moving back to what has been normal on this planet for 18 previous centuries before the last 200 years. And the two biggest economies have always been China and India. And I know India is a, 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 um, a democracy, but China jolly well isn't. And it isn't about to become one. And yet it's their economy now dictating everything and driving commodity prices. And it's going to be number one. We know it's going to be number one. After all, there are so many more people over there that are Western total populations. We're hardly more than a rounding error. So, I, I, I mean, demographics is part of it. We poor old Westerners are going through the period when post-World War II baby boomers are all retiring. So our consumption isn't going to drive anything. And yet consumption is what drives the economy. So we're in a weak period demographically. And we're moving over when the Asian markets are moving up into their historically normal position of being the dominant thing. And they're not going to do Western democracy or Western capitalist systems. They're going to do something different. So I can see that what we might call the new normal won't look like the old normal. Um, you see, in the old normal, the rate of interest in government bonds is usually the rate at which this economy grows, let's say 3%, plus the rate of inflation, which might be, I don't know, 2%, in which case inflation, uh, the, the, the yield on the 10-year Treasury bond should be 5%. 
But we know that if we went to 5% right now, you would crash the market. Mortgages would go underwater straight away, and there would be social unrest, and it just can't be allowed to happen. So I can't get us in my mind from where we are back to the old normal. So we've got to live with some sort of new normal. And, and here's the thing. If those cycles, particularly the four and the 10-year cycle, were Western world cycles, why would China have a Western world cycle? It's got its own cycle. They don't elect their presidents every eight years. Uh, they have five-year national plans. So maybe the four-year cycle is going to become a five-year cycle. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's going to be different from how it was in the past. But uh, I'm, this is a sort of me struggling intellectually to try and yeah. work out what's going wrong, why am I wrong, why is it not working sort of thing. What is working for me is, of course, in actually making money, my pontifications about politics and geopolitical risk aren't how we make money. We make money following the trends that are in place now. And I rebalance my trends every month. So by owning what is working, that's how we make money. And what is working on my trends is we should be long China, India, emerging markets, and Japan. Then a passive holding of the world index. The other markets like Britain and America are growing, but they're growing slower than the world index. And therefore, if we own them, we're taking more risk than we needed to for a lower return than we could get elsewhere. So we shouldn't do that. So I have been saying, although our, both our markets are going up in the Western world, we should actually be slowly taking money out of them on the rise and increasing our weight in those Asian markets. So that bit is working. But when people ask me about the predictions and all the rest, it, I go back to my cycles and I realize I got a problem. It's not working at the moment. It, it, and it's zero interest rates, quantitative easing. That's the new, new thing that has bugged up a system that's work for 50 years for me basically it's very frustrating <laughs> no I, i'm sure it is and when you look at uh, yeah. the, the work of someone like kondratiev you know he went back several hundred yeah. years when he put his he waves he, together yeah yes so so you know that that period obviously coincided his kind of back testing if you will coincided with mm. a period where the likes of india and china were in the ascendancy still so so how yes. does you know that i guess that longer cycle is potentially yeah. still in play and according to that, well, I do, I do agree with that. Yes. I mean, basically, as China rises, not just in a few industries like motor cars to become number one, there was a period about a year ago when people thought it's had its big growth. It's going to slow down to about 4% per annum. But in fact, under President Xi, it looks like it's actually accelerating again back up to seven and a half, something like that. And some, for something that big, that's an awful lot of growth. And building this new infrastructure project called the New Silk Road, that is quite clearly going to absorb an awful lot of commodities, mainly uh, copper, uh, nickel, steel. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a road, it's a railway, it's a fiber optic network. It, it, it's a, that's going to drive commodity prices uh, in, into a bull market for, for quite a long time. So, uh, And then secondly, although it's different, the Indian economy is coming off an incredibly low base. And, and it's not really going to copy the Chinese example. It's not going to do manufacturing in the same way. But it has very 
as China, but it has very strong positive demographics. And for as long as this incredibly dynamic Mr. Modi is the prime minister uh, and mustn't be assassinated like Gandhi, um, I think they're on a roll and I can see their GNP picking up, uh, not only growing at 7%, but getting to about 10 and probably keeping that rate up for a decade, that sort of thing. I mean, the amount of growth that they're going to do as they now catch up with the Western world I think is very significant indeed. So, and you're talking about 1.4 and 1.5 billion people in each of those two countries. And that's a pretty powerful growth thing. And that will drive the, the long-term trend, I think. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, there's this, uh, with this particular thing you got wrong, it, it's fascinating for me to hear how you have to kind of re- test and retest your assumptions, work out the ones mm. which aren't working, work out why they're not working, uh, yes. And then just kind of park them to one side, stick with what is working. And but I guess you have, you'll have to keep a watch out on that four and ten year cycle just to see if they kind of recouple again. Well, I, I, funny, and you should say that because I've I looked back through the data. There have in the past been periods when the shorter term cycles have been overridden by one issue or another, and it's usually correct to keep tabs on where those cycles should be because they eventually pop up in exactly the right place where they should have been all along. It's as though the cycle still is there, but it's currently being eclipsed by a bigger wave. And when that bigger wave has rolled through, there's the cycle again. So I do indeed keep following the data as though the four and the 10-year cycles are still working, Um, even though at the moment it's pretty difficult to convince people that that's a useful activity. Fabulous. Robin, it's been such a pleasure. Uh, Hopefully you and I will get Mm. to sit and chat in person again in London at some point soon. absolutely. Thanks for joining us. Okay, terrific. Thank you. Bye-bye. It's funny how many highly experienced market uh, participants like Robin were blindsided and learned incredibly valuable lessons in 2008. You know, Robin's been in the markets for 50 years now, but it just shows you, you know, perhaps the greatest lesson he learned came 40-odd years into that career. So it just goes to show you that the markets will continue teaching you lessons as long as you remain in them. Well, sadly, that concludes another episode of Adventures in Finance. Before we go, yep, that's right, the old legal disclaimer. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So please do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and always trade responsibly. Next week, we'll be back with the first of two podcasts, which will look at two potentially big themes for 2018. First up is volatility, and joining me are Chris Cole of Artemis Capital Management and David Dredge of City Financial. Do not miss that one. In the meantime, if you've got an interesting question about this week's show or anything else you've heard on Adventures in Finance, we'd love to hear from you. So please send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes and leave some reviews. You're a fraction too late with that, but you're getting better at it. Well, you know. Definitely I fix that in post, right? Definitely, definitely leave a review. Uh, to keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and of course, podcast episodes, then follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. And we will also be found lurking in the dark recesses of Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search there for Real Vision. You can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. And you can follow me at AIF James. Really? You can. That's not even a joke. That's it from us. We will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. 
a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.